Hey everyone and welcome back to The Spoke Zarathustra, A Reader's Guide. In the last episode on The Pale Criminal, we discussed the sort of person who has a lot of energy within their soul, who has the prerequisite for virtue, but they lack the mental capacity and the mental strength to channel their inner passions, channel their inner energies in positive directions. And instead, allow that energy to express itself in negative ways that are destructive to themselves or destructive to people around them or destructive to their community in a way that isn't necessarily in line with some of the creative destruction that Zarathustra lays out in this book, which is in the long term positive. Instead of channeling that passion towards things that need to be deconstructed and reconstructed either within themselves, within their friends, or within their communities, the negative or underdeveloped aspects of those realms, they allow their passions to destroy good things. Today's section on reading and writing is a bit different from what we've read before. In this section, Nietzsche gives an overview of what it means to read him, what it means to read aphorisms. And we take a bit of a pause from the destructive elements of what Nietzsche's been doing in this book towards 2,000 years of religion, 2,000 years of psychology, 2,000 years of human existence in his efforts to destroy and replace those with something better. And he pauses to help elaborate on how to read Nietzsche, how to understand what he's been able to do in the last 20 pages. And then he also, in the second half of this section, takes an aside from discussing how to read him and gives us some encouragement that while there is this destructive process going on in both his writings and in our own souls as we introspect, find the things that need to be destroyed and replaced. And he explains that there is some positivity that comes out of it. And we'll see in this section a bit of this pause is used to explain what we ourselves as neophytes on this journey are experiencing. So let's get into the section. Chapter 7 on reading and writing. Of all that is written, I love only that which one writes with one's own blood. Write with blood, and you will discover that blood is spirit. It is not at all easy to understand the blood of another. I hate those readers who are idlers. Whoever knows the reader will do nothing more for the reader. Another century of readers and the spirit itself will stink. 
that everyone may learn to read will in the long run corrupt not only writing, but also thinking. Once the spirit was God, then it became human, and now it is even becoming the mob. Whoever writes in blood and aphorisms does not want to be read, but rather to be learned by heart. In the mountains, the shortest way is from summit to summit, but for that you must have long legs. Aphorisms should be summits, and those to whom they are addressed should be tall and lofty. The air thin and pure, danger near, and the spirit filled with a joyful wickedness. These things go well together. I want to have goblins around me, for I am courageous. Courage that frightens specters away creates goblins for itself. Courage wants to laugh. I no longer feel as you people do. This cloud that I see beneath me, hanging dark and heavy, about which I laugh. Just this is your thundercloud. You look upward when you desire uplifting, and I look downward because I am uplifted. Who among you can laugh and be uplifted at the same time? Whoever climbs the highest mountains laughs about all tragic plays and tragic wakes. Courageous, untroubled, mocking, violent. Thus does wisdom want us. She is a woman and always loves only a warrior. You say to me, life is hard to bear, but wherefore would you have in the morning your pride and in the evening your resignation? Life is hard to bear, but do not pretend to be so sensitive. We are all of us pretty sturdy asses and she-asses. What do we have in common with the rosebud, which trembles because a drop of dew lies on its body? It is true, we love life, not because we are used to living, but because we are used to loving. There is always a bit of madness in loving, but there is also always a bit of reason in madness. And even to me, as one who is fond of life, it seems that butterflies and soap bubbles, and whatever is like them among humans, know the most about happiness. To see these light, foolish, delicate, moving little souls fluttering around, that seduces Zarathustra to tears and songs. I should only believe in a god who knew how to dance. And when I saw my devil, I found him serious, thorough, deep, and solemn. It was the spirit of heaviness. Through him do all things fall. Not with wrath, but with laughter, does one kill. Come, let us kill the spirit of heaviness. I have learned how to walk. Since then, I let myself run. I have learned how to fly. 
Since then, I will not be pushed before moving from my place. Now I am light. Now I am flying. Now I see myself beneath myself. Now a god dances through me. Thus spoke Zarathustra. So this is a fairly difficult section to understand. Nietzsche, who already has a very Spartan way of explaining things, takes the style of the aphorism almost to an extreme in this section. The aphorism, as I mentioned in one of the beginning episodes, is how Nietzsche chose to write basically everything that he wrote. And it's essentially very small sections dedicated to a single or a couple different related topics. On average, I would say most of Nietzsche's aphorisms in his other works are about two paragraphs long. Some of them, the longer ones, are just over a page and a half, maybe two pages. And in the aphorism, Nietzsche spends very few sentences discussing whatever it is he's discussing. But as he himself described, he could write in ten sentences what other people couldn't write in an entire book. So in this section on reading and writing, Nietzsche describes how to read aphorisms and the types of readers who should be reading them and the types of approach we should have towards learning the things being taught. Nietzsche starts off the section saying that he only loves that which one writes with one's own blood. Write with blood, and you will discover that blood is spirit. Here what Nietzsche is doing is using the metaphor of blood to describe the sorts of things that both give us our vital energy, the things that give us life, the things that are so important to us that they animate us, and also, there are connotations that blood is the sort of thing that comes out when someone's injured. When someone goes through deep, painful experiences. And he uses this dual metaphor. That he only likes things that are written with blood. Written with one's own blood. And that blood is spirit. To suggest that things that are written in that style by people who are writing about things that are so fundamentally true for them, things that animate them, things that are so vital and so important to them and come from experience, and often negative experience, are the best things to write, and also that they're the best things to read. And when he says that blood is spirit, he's basically saying that when you write about things or talk about things or focus on things that are so vitally important to you, they contain spiritual truths, mental truths about your experience, about your understanding of life that are so vital, so animating, and yet also incredibly instructive to you and other people. And you can get a sense of this, for example, when you're talking to a friend and you get onto topics that are more than merely superficial, 
if someone's telling you a story about something that's so important to them, it may not be something that's important to you, but you can tell from the way that the person's talking and how, how they emphasize what they're talking about that you naturally fall into a much deeper state of attention to what they're talking about. And your body, your unconscious mind, seems to recognize when someone is talking about something very fundamental to them and when they're telling a story about something moving, you're, you're almost wrapped with attention to what they're saying. And as is the case with any great story or any profound story, something that comes from the essence of things, the essence of who someone is, you pay very careful attention. And it's hard to understand why, but it seems to be the case that you pay very careful attention because there might be something in that story that you can learn from. And the more fundamental the experience is to the person, the more essential the experience is to the person, the more human truth it contains, the more instructive it is to something that we might have in common with them. And if it's so important to them and so fundamental to who they are, it may contain wisdom for us. And it's something that very deep down inside resonates with us. And in that sense, if you write with blood, if you tell stories with blood, if you're, if you're talking about something that's so vital and so important to you that you're so passionate about, there will be more animated force within the things that you're saying that have the potential to move people, have the potential to animate other people, have the potential to educate other people in an area that's fundamental to human becoming. And this is in contrast to other writings, writings that aren't written with blood. I've talked before about the sorts of books that you often see on the New York Times bestseller list. Malcolm Gladwell, Daniel Kahneman, things that earn the plaudits of the literati of the age and within five years are completely forgotten because they've basically spent 250 pages talking about one minuscule aspect of human experience and often they don't even hit the mark on what they're trying to say which is very similar to what Nietzsche said when he could write in 10 sentences what others can't say in an entire book so Nietzsche starts the section describing the type of writing that he prefers, the type of writing style that he uses, and the type of writing style that we should be on the search for in instructing ourselves in how to operate in the world and in instructing ourselves in how to understand the world. Because often the writers who write with blood, they write things that are so essential, so fundamental, and so much more condensed in the amount of truth that they contain that there will be much more wisdom in them than in all the New York Times bestsellers that you'll ever find. Nietzsche goes on to then contrast the types of readers that he likes. He says, it is not at all easy to understand the blood of another. I hate those readers who are idlers. And here he makes two very interesting points. One, if you're reading someone who writes with blood, and they're condensing what animates them 
what they've learned through pain, what they've learned through experience. It's very difficult to understand them. This is for a variety of reasons. One, different things animate different people. So what someone else is talking about, you may not understand. You may not understand where they're coming from. Secondly, and this is true of the profound writers, the things that they understand are often the result of years, decades, of profound levels of introspection, profound levels of learning and trying to understand the world. And if you're trying to understand someone who has put years and decades into soul searching, trying to understand the world and what's going on and how to best operate within it, and you haven't taken any steps on that path before, of course it's going to be extremely difficult to understand it. It's like if you've never taken a math class before and you're trying to understand a treatise on advanced calculus. There's no way you're going to understand it at first. And this is what Nietzsche's saying. It's not at all easy to understand the blood of another. And he hates those readers who are idlers. He hates the people that just pick up a book, skim the words, try and get a vague understanding of what's going on, and don't put effort into understanding it. If you pick up a Malcolm Gladwell book, 250 pages of interesting but superficial stories about one aspect of humanity, it's very easy to read that with you know, a TV show on on the background, or you're listening to the radio, and you can still understand what Malcolm Gladwell is saying. It's not difficult to understand. He's not putting blood into what he writes. He's not putting spirit into what he writes. And so you're reading in an idle fashion. But to truly understand something, to truly understand the blood of another person, to truly understand the spirit of another person, to truly understand the depth and profundity of someone else's soul. You need to pay attention. There's so much more information caught up in the stories that they tell you or how they behave that a mere superficial understanding by slightly paying attention is not going to happen. Serious things require serious amounts of attention to understand. For something that took someone decades to understand themselves, it's going to take you some time and some attention to try and figure out yourself. So when you're reading the greats, when you're reading Nietzsche, when you're reading Dostoevsky, he's basically saying here that you need to pay attention. You need to try and understand how this person's mind works, what their experience is about, why they've had those experiences. You have to try and figure out, are they right? Are they wrong? Do they have some preconceived notion of the world that is maybe incorrect do you have a preconceived notion of the world that's incorrect whose model of the world and whose model of behavior is better yours or the person you're reading and with Nietzsche and with all the great writers all the great storytellers Oftentimes it's easy to say, oh, well, you're just another human being with different experience and your experience is no different than mine and therefore we're equal. No, <laughs> no, that's wrong. You need to come at the great writers, come at the great thinkers, come at the great storytellers with a high degree of humility towards your own experience because maybe you're wrong. You probably are. Because of Nietzsche's aphoristic style, and because of 
how manifold his style of thinking is. It took me dozens of read-throughs of this book, dozens of read-throughs of all his other books, to try and get an understanding of all the ways that he sees the world and why he sees the world the way he does. And it's not a linear process, it's a multi-nodal process. He's thought so deeply about so many different aspects of the world that to understand the whole, you can't just understand single parts. And so to understand Nietzsche and to try to elevate my own way of thinking, it took a profound amount of humility, a profound amount of respect for his writing, and a profound amount of accepting that maybe I had something wrong with the way that I saw things, to then spend the time, spend the effort concentrating, trying to figure out how he saw the world, and trying to figure out where there was a mismatch and why that mismatch existed, and determine whose fault that was. And I'm telling you right now, it's basically always been the case that he was correct and I wasn't. And the process of adjusting your worldview, adjusting your behavior, being critical about your behavior in light of what a truly great thinker, a truly great author is saying, being critical and adjusting your own behavior requires that humility or requires a great deal of concentration on what these people are saying. And I've found my life has benefited immensely from finding people that I admire, whether they're great writers, great thinkers, or just great people in my life, and trying to figure out how they approach things, why they approach them that way, how they think about things, and then trying to map my own thinking to theirs, my own behavior to theirs. So that's what Nietzsche is saying here. And some of those ideas that I just described about trying to understand Nietzsche's manifold interpretation of the world from a variety of different areas, whether it's history, sociology, biology, philosophy, psychology. The imagery contained later in the section really reflects that when he says that whoever writes in blood and aphorisms does not want to be read, but rather to be learned by heart. In the mountains, the shortest way is from summit to summit, but for that you must have long legs. Aphorisms should be summits, and those to whom they are addressed should be tall and lofty. So he starts out there by saying, whoever writes in blood or aphorisms doesn't want to be read, but rather to be learned by heart. Again, that's saying, you know, don't give a cursory reading to the things that great authors have written. They don't want to be understood by the brain in sort of a superficial manner. People want to be learned by heart. It's something that we need to write into our souls, write into our hearts, and really take seriously and, and change who we are in order to benefit from these things. And Nietzsche's imagery of the mountain range and the aphorism being traveling from summit to summit is a great way of understanding the process by which someone comes to understand as profound a thinker as Nietzsche. He writes in aphorisms where he gives basically the pith of what he's saying with very few of the supporting arguments. 
unlike many philosophers who take you through point A, point B, point C, point D to get to their conclusion, Nietzsche basically writes the conclusion, and he says, this is the way it is. And he does give some detail, but he, he's much more the type of thinker that goes from point A to point F directly. And in order to understand that, there's a lot of work involved in your own studies and your own thinking to try and understand why he's saying these conclusions. He's giving you the mountain peak of the argument, but it's on us who have either explored many different mountain ranges ourselves, going down into the dark valleys of misunderstanding and rising up to the, the peaks of understanding. It takes a long time of our own experience, our own learning, to understand the vast mountain range of ideas and explanations that is human life. And Nietzsche doesn't give you too much help. He basically tells you the conclusions, and as far as I can tell, he's very correct about basically every conclusion he's made. But he gives very little, he gives very little explanation as to how he got there. And therefore, he says, aphorism should be summits, and those to whom they are addressed should be tall and lofty. You have to have long legs. You need to be able, in order to understand him, to be able to travel from peak to peak, to jump from point A to point F. And if you're not there yet, you need to strengthen yourself. You need to begin to understand the mountain ranges that he's talking about that is human existence. I know for myself, reading Nietzsche, I had to read Nietzsche and then also get fairly into the detail of a whole bunch of different areas of human life. I had to think a lot about evolution. I had to think a lot about quantum mechanics. I had to think a lot about astrophysics. And I'm not saying I'm an expert in any of those areas, but I needed to figure out much more than I knew beforehand. And by doing so, and supplementing my reading of Nietzsche with all these different areas of humanity that he's talking about, and using my own experience and my my own understanding of my own psychology, my own understanding of my own emotions. I had to combine all those things to be able to understand the peaks, the summits that he was talking about. He goes on to talk about one of the psychological dispositions that you both need to have, and then luckily also happens to develop during the course of trying to figure out human life, trying to figure out how reality works, trying to figure out how to best orient yourself towards the world. When he says, the air thin and pure, danger near, and the spirit filled with a joyful wickedness, these things go well together. I want to have goblins around me, for I am courageous. Courage that frightens specters away creates goblins for itself. Courage wants to laugh. And he's saying that as we introspect, as we learn about the world, as we reflect on our own behavior, as we read the greats and try and understand how we should orient ourselves in the world, our spirit needs to be strong. Our spirit needs to be courageous. Our spirit needs to be bold and filled with a joyful wickedness. Because in the course of this introspection, in the course of coming to really understand the world better than we already do, we're going to come across ideas that we consciously or unconsciously held that 
are rooted on faulty premises. We have to look at ourselves and see where we've made mistakes and be very honest with it. We have to look at whole modes of thought that we hold to be true that may not be true. And instead of being cowardly and retreating from the dangers of facing those things, we need to be bold, we need to be courageous, we need to be strong, we need to have joyful wickedness and being able to destroy the false beliefs that we have. I happen to know many people who when they're faced with a hardship in life or when they're faced with an event that calls into question their fundamental beliefs about the world or causes them to suffer, these people, instead of taking on the challenge and trying to deal with it, or instead of looking at how they see the world and trying to figure out how maybe they miss something important, or seeing how they look at the world and seeing where maybe they don't have a good understanding of something, which constantly leads to them screwing something up. Instead of dealing with that, instead of thinking very hard about how they're wrong and what they've done to screw up their own situation, they either blame someone else or they run away. And by doing that, you're never going to solve your problem. By blaming other people, you're never going to solve your problem. By running away from your own problems, your own flaws, you're guaranteeing that the area of life that you're weak in, the area of life that keeps on hitting you, will only continue to hit you hard. And as you get older and the demands of life become stronger and higher upon you, you're going to falter exactly where you're weak. And Nietzsche quite rightly says here, you as you're trying to understand the world and develop yourself and figure out what's really going on and figure out where you're wrong and where you're weak and where you need to be strengthened, your spirit needs to be bold, it needs to be courageous, it needs to create goblins for itself, it needs to find problems, invent problems that your spirit needs to tackle. And through the course of doing that, you develop mental toughness. You develop physical toughness, you develop willpower, you develop a unified will that knows what it wants and knows how to deal with the obstacles that life will put in its way. From this point on, Nietzsche basically stops talking about reading and writing and continues to talk more about some of the psychological requirements of a person who's undergoing this journey and some of the psychological transformations that are made by undertaking this journey. He says, I no longer feel as you people do. This cloud that I see beneath me, hanging dark and heavy, about which I laugh. Just this is your thundercloud. And again, using that idea of elevation that he brought up in the mountain range symbolism, when you're undeveloped, when you're searching through the mountain range of human ideas and human experience and trying to figure out what the heck is going on, you've just been thrown into the world in a particular place, a particular time, with a particular set of skills, with a particular cultural background, a certain type of upbringing, certain ideas taught to you that may or may not be correct, may or may not be beneficial to your life. There's a lot of wandering involved, and there's a lot of pain 
And there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of anguish. And it can feel often like a very negative experience. It can feel as you're criticizing yourself, criticizing the ideas that you've been taught, criticizing the people around you, that there's this dark cloud overhead that nothing seems right, that everything seems wrong, and it's a very depressing and difficult place to be in. But Zarathustra is say, saying here that he sees this beneath him, this dark and heavy cloud about which he laughs, that through his course of self-development himself, through his beginning to understand the world, beginning to understand the mountain range of human ideas and human experiences, he's gotten to a place where he can stand on these mountaintops, tall and lofty, and see all these problems as beneath him. And he's also developed the interesting disposition that he's able to laugh about them, that all the things that may have once bothered you, all the things that may have brought you down or that you've had to tackle or really struggle with. Um, for myself back in university when the first worldview that I sort of developed, this libertarian human rights and freedom-based way of thinking that I developed, when I took that down I was very confused. I had to I had to deal with a lot of ambiguity, I had to deal with a lot of darkness, I had to deal with a lot of nihilism, I had to fundamentally reorient myself towards the world and really learn anew what the world is about, what humanity is about. But through the process of doing that, and through the process of taking on those negative challenges, and becoming more in tune with how the world works, and what's required for human life, I've been able to get myself to a place where, instead of everything being dark and heavy and dreary all the time, I'm able to look back on those negative experiences and laugh at them or, or sort of smile about my stupidity when I was younger that even those things that were so negative now I sort of laugh at them because I'm past them. That I've developed myself more. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I certainly have a lot of work to do. But I've developed myself where I can see those dark thunderclouds beneath me. And that's what Zarathustra is saying. He's saying, you know, by trying to travel from peak to peak and you know, if you can't make it peak to peak, maybe you have to go down and explore some of the more niche, hidden areas of certain ideas, certain experiences, certain emotions. By putting yourself through that and being bold and being courageous and taking on the challenge of introspection and figuring yourself out, you can get to a point where you're strong and you can stand on mountain peaks. You can get to the top and those dark thunderclouds of your past experiences different negative ways of looking at the world, you can get past those and you can begin to laugh about them. And that message of being bold, being courageous, and being able to build yourself into someone who's stronger, who can stand above the negativity of day-to-day -day life, the negativity of our bad experiences, the negativity of the ways in which the world has not turned out to be the way that we want it to be, is echoed throughout some of the next things that Nietzsche says. He says, you look upward when you desire uplifting, and I look downward because I am uplifted. Who among you can laugh and be uplifted at the same time? Whoever climbs the highest mountains laughs about all tragic plays and tragic wakes. Courageous, untroubled, mocking, violent, thus does wisdom want us. She is a woman and always loves only a warrior. 
He's saying, listen, there's a place you can get to where you're above all the problems you used to have. Where all the problems you used to have and all the problems that upset other people, upset the world. Often those are things that you can get to a point yourself where you're, you're tough enough, you're strong enough to be able to look at and laugh at. That you have this levity that, that is the result of courageous and bold spiritual power that is required and develops on this path of introspection and trying to understand things and trying to orient yourself in a way that's aligned with your virtues to become an excellent person. He then goes on to say, You say to me, life is hard to bear, but wherefore would you have in the morning your pride and in the evening your resignation? Life is hard to bear, but do not pretend to be so sensitive. We are all of us pretty sturdy asses and she-asses. What do we have in common with the rosebud, which trembles because a drop of dew lies on its body? And he's saying, you know, one of the natural human reactions to hardship is resignation. It's being sensitive. It's, it's taking the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And instead of taking them on, and instead of being courageous, instead of being a sturdy ass, we try and be like the rosebud who thinks that our soul is so delicate that, oh, this little minor thing triggered me. Oh, I'm so upset that the approach of being a human that is weak, that is sensitive to these things and doesn't take on the challenge of overcoming them is a bad way to be a human. The Buddhists say life is suffering. And there's so many things in the environment that are set up against you. We're basically evolved crazy monkeys spinning around a globe where every other animal, every other plant is trying to kill you. The sun's radioactive energy is trying to kill you. Other people are trying to take advantage of you and kill you. That our whole system, everything we know as will to power in some way is trying to impede your growth. It's trying to impose its will against yours. And that one approach coming from the Platonic school of thinking, oh, we're descended from this pure loving entity called God, called the good. Our soul, our spirit is this pure entity that relates to God and it comes from God. And it's this beautiful blank slate that nothing should besmirch. Therefore, anything that hurts me or triggers me or if someone says something a little mean to me, I'm going to be so upset because I should be so pure and lofty and elegant and everyone should be nice to me. That's rubbish. Nietzsche's view of the world is will to power where things are competing against each other. Things are trying to assert dominance over each other. Nice experiences, good experiences are the exception. The rule is that things are trying to take advantage of you. Things are trying to kill you. And humans being these evolved monkeys, these evolved apes, we have the defenses against these. We're sturdy asses. We're sturdy pack mules, is what he's trying to say. We have the strength to carry a burden and move uphill with it. That if we believe in this view that we all come from this loving God that only cares about us and there should be no hardship, that everything should be good and beautiful and love all the time, that thought weakens us. 
believing that weakens us. And a lot of us don't even know that we believe that. But it's so encultured in all the institutions that we inhabit, in our education system, in safe spaces at university. This view that things should be nice all the time is so permeated within our culture that people grow up with the supposition that things should be nice and anything negative should be banished, outlawed, made illegal, eradicated. Whereas Nietzsche is trying to say no. Life is will to power. Life is the continual overcoming of itself. Life is a continual struggle and an uphill battle. And there's value in that. The suffering entailed by life, if you choose to take responsibility for it, if you choose to take those burdens, face them, become courageous, become mocking, become violent, to follow your virtue, to channel your passions and work against the obstacles of the world, you become stronger, you become more capable, you, you can become a more integrated, capable, powerful person. And that we should not be like the rosebud, which trembles because a drop of dew lies on it. We should not seek after safe spaces. We should not get triggered by every little thing that happens. We don't need a room at our university where we can go play with puppies and play with Play-Doh. You're basically a child at that point that can't face the necessary hardships of life. It's very interesting that later in the section, Nietzsche and Zarathustra, who in a few short sections did away with the old Christian version of God, the old Platonic version of God, who are self-avowed atheists, say in one little line, I should only believe in a God who knew how to dance. They then go on to describe their devil, the spirit of heaviness, this thing that is serious, thorough, deep, and solemn. It's the thing that weighs you down. The thing that when you're facing a challenge, when you're facing hardships, leads to resignation. It's the enervating force that challenges at every step our courage, our willpower, our tenacity. For Zarathustra in a world defined by will to power, as this becoming entity that continually tries to overcome itself, to expand, to dominate, to in improve its capabilities, improve its ability to deal with reality. His antithetical principle to that is the spirit of heaviness. The, the mental tendency to resign, the mental tendency to be dragged down, the, the mental friction that tries to stop us in this process of becoming. It's the thing that tells you that maybe you shouldn't go to the gym. It's the thing that tells you, ah, why should I read Nietzsche? Why should I read Zarathustra? Nothing's going to happen there. There's no point. I'm going to die anyway. The world's horrible. I, I've been sinned against. I've been assaulted. I've been thrown into this horrible realm of suffering. Why should I put in any effort? It never seems to go anywhere. It's the thing that tries to make you quit. It's this source of negativity that weighs down your every step, that tries to impede your progress. 
it's that way of thinking that stops you from becoming who you are. And while one thing we might expect when someone faces their devil is to run away from it, as we'll see throughout this book, Nietzsche makes reference to this spirit of heaviness many times. And in many sections, he explicitly accepts it. He accepts that it's a natural part of humanity. He accepts that it's a natural part of psychology. And it's something that he uses and harnesses and tries to overcome. It's basically the idea that all the negative things that are thrown at you, all the weights that are put on your shoulders, are things that you can improve your strength with. So similar to going to the gym for your physical body, you add more weight, you add more resistance, you make the challenge more difficult so that your body learns how to overcome and grow stronger. The spirit of heaviness works in a similar way in the mental arena. That all those negative challenges, all those ways of thinking that detract from your life, all those little excuses that you give yourself to stop doing something, to stop putting in effort, those are a mental challenge. Those are mental resistances that if you train your spirit to be bold, to be courageous, to be violent, to be mocking, to, to be powerful, to overcome those challenges, to say, you know what, I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to do a hundred more sit-ups than I was going to do just because you can train your mind, you can train your own spirit to overcome the spirit of heaviness. And that by accepting and facing and challenging your devil, whatever it is, you can overcome it. And when he says that I should only believe in a God who knew how to dance, he's again playing with symbolism. He's saying, you know, even though I'm an atheist, if there was a conception of God that related to the will to power, that included both good and evil, that was beyond good and evil, that included the levity, the laughter, the courage, the passionate Dionysian energy to go forward, and included the spirit of heaviness, gravity, this thing that brings us down. It's best expressed visually in the image of the dance, that the dance is basically the, the human body expressing its joy for life in the form of dance. This creative, emotional, passionate movement that nonetheless has to deal with the gravity, the physicality, the heaviness of the human body in trying to dance. That it's difficult to dance. You need to have lean muscles. You need to have stamina. You need to have energy. You need to have overcome physical impediments to being able to dance. But in spite of that, you dance. In spite of that, you feel joy. In spite of that, you feel levity. And that's really the symbol of the dance. is one that Nietzsche uses quite a bit to express his approach towards life. He says elsewhere, I'm going to horribly butcher this quote, 
He says, basically, a day that you haven't danced is a day not worth living. That in spite of the hardships of life, we should develop ourselves into a person who can feel joy, who can stand on mountaintops, who can have a unified will that is courageous, that can tackle the problems that we face, tackle the problems that our friends face, tackle the problems that our communities face. And even in spite of the difficulties contained therein, we should feel this joy and levity. That the only way of killing the spirit of heaviness is through laughter, not through wrath. That it's this sense of lightness, this sense of joy in spite of suffering that can only come through a correct way of seeing the world and the following of one's own virtues and the expansion upon one's own virtues and the expansion of one's personality and sphere of capability in alignment with the will to power that gives life its meaning. And contrary to what we saw with the people who might think that the earth is unfair and all these horrible things, oh, they hurt me so deeply and I'm so sensitive and I'm a rosebud and nothing should ever hurt me. They're living in a reality that is static, that is not defined by will to power, that's defined by goodness, that they are one with a universe that is everlasting goodness and love. And therefore, anything that doesn't align with that should be banished, should be illegal, should be gone forever. And they fundamentally believe in this pure universe of good. And most of them don't even know it. And so for them, instead of taking on the active challenges and building themselves and developing themselves and taking on the slings and arrows of reality and overcoming them, and expressing the will to power's joy in becoming more powerful and overcoming obstacles. They'd rather avoid the obstacles altogether because it doesn't fit with their mental paradigm. It doesn't fit with the way they want the world to work. Getting back to something Nietzsche said earlier, it's a fundamentally sick and lacking in energy type of person who needs a belief in reality that is good and pure love to avoid the necessary hardships of life that instead of taking on the challenge and becoming something stronger than what they are to overcome themselves, overcome a reality that's constantly trying to kill or take advantage of you, they'd rather run away and they'd rather build human institutions and human societies into protective mechanisms against reality. And that their way of living, as we'll see in many sections in this book, is based on this fundamentally flawed view of reality that takes as its God, the Platonic God, that Nietzsche quite rightly did away with. And here he's replacing it with his God who knew how to dance. I've learned to walk. Since then I let myself run. I've learned how to fly. Since then I will not be pushed before moving from my place. Now I am light. Now I am flying. Now I see myself beneath myself. Now a god dances through me. Here again, Nietzsche and Zarathustra give us this view of a constant expansion of one's own capability in an ever-increasing way, in line with the will to power, and in line with our own particular way of dealing with the world. And this expansion of our virtues and trying to become a better person anchored by aiming towards our virtues, 
and trying to figure out the world and trying to reevaluate who we are and lining that up with who we might become in the best possible outcome and dealing with the world in that style and having the psychological dispositions of the warrior, being courageous, untroubled, mocking, violent, being bold, having willpower, being able to command oneself. By doing that, we can learn how to walk. We can get on our own two feet. We can let ourselves run. We can learn to fly. We can become better and better individuals in light of the spirit of heaviness, in light of all the challenges that we face in the world. So in this section, Nietzsche gave a brief overview of how he's writing. Fortunately for you guys, I've been able to explain that in some of the past episodes of this podcast, but if you're just reading the book and you had gotten through 30 pages and got to this section, you'd be wondering what the heck was going on and why he's writing in these weird disconnected sentences. So he spends some time to explain that. And then he also takes a bit of a break from his destructive philosophy where he actively goes against some of the beliefs about the world, beliefs about ourselves that we may or may not know that we have, and gives us an explanation in very imagistic form in the way that we need to be disposed towards the world and towards ourselves in order to make something of ourselves. And in the next section, Nietzsche will give us a bit more in-depth view as to what it's like being a learner on this journey on how to overcome ourselves and how to become the best versions of ourselves that we can be. Thank you for joining, and I'll talk to you in the next episode. If you enjoyed this podcast and you happen to know people who may be interested in the messages that we're trying to go through here, uh, please share with them. I'd be happy to uh, get this stuff out to more and more people. Uh, if you want to get in contact with me, you can drop me an email at alex at alexdrake.ca. Uh, any feedback is very helpful. All right. Thanks, guys.